You're listening to Resident. Rehivasi. Kazi. Banor. Mukim. Ipua. Ritil Deganashi. Al Mukim. Residente. A 10 part series exploring individual perspectives on the immigrant experience in Ireland and the personal histories that led them here. This is episode one Maureen. I was born in Kenya, spent most of my life in Dublin, and then moved up to Northern Ireland. I'm a mother of three gorgeous boys, five, three, and six months. The road to my granny's house from the main road um, is not tarmacked, so it's just dust. Um, you have to drive for miles before you get to my granny's house. Um, my mom left me when I was only a few months old and I um, spent most of my life with my granny in this farm place, beautiful place. Lots of trees, lots of um, mangoes. She was a mango farmer. She grew a lot of corn and beans. So we never really had to buy anything apart from like sugar or, you know, things like <laughs> like bread. But everything else we grew and we ate from the farm. A lot of people would just kind of eat the staple food, which was maize and beans. But my granny would always pack me like rice, which was like a luxury at the time. And she always made porridge, um, Kenyan porridge made out of maize meal and sometimes millet. But I always had to do the dishes. <laughs> I hated doing the dishes, but I, I, I did them. And then after doing all my chores, would go and climb trees <laughs> and um, literally... I would always come back with a ripped dress because I didn't have trousers. So I'd always um, climb the trees with my cousins and come back with a ripped dress. And my granny would give out to me, but it didn't matter because I had a great time. She was my everything. She was the only parental figure that I had for a long time. I only saw my mom once, maybe twice a year. So I lived with her till I was about eight. And then I went to a boarding school. It was a church school, so there was a lot of singing. So I was always singing. Um, there was prayer time morning and evening, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it really built up my faith, and um, I started to kind of study the Bible for myself while I was in boarding school. But we also loved to play. We played basketball, um, <laughs> even though there was no hoop. But anyway, we made it work somehow. At the time, I didn't realize what a huge adjustment it was, but I was only eight. I just, <laughs> now when I look back, I, I mostly remember not finding my socks and how traumatizing that was every single day. And I tear up talking about socks um, because you were expected to wear your socks every day as part of the school uniform. And people would either take them or I couldn't remember, you know, because you had to wash your own clothes as well and wash yourself with cold water that you had to get from the river. And so a huge adjustment for an eight-year-old. I was there till nearly 12 um, when I moved here. 
I did not want to come for many reasons. Now I can see why I didn't want to come. I didn't want to leave the only parent I knew to come and be with the parent that I didn't know. Um, So my mom was in Ireland at the time and she was married to my stepdad, ended up having my sister here. And so it was easier then for me to come and, and, and stay. I didn't travel with anyone I knew. <laughs> I traveled with a woman that helped me get here, if that makes sense. So I didn't know her, had never met her, but it was organized for her to bring me. And I just remember being like, what am I doing in this place and in this country? And I felt so helpless being so far away from the people that I knew, the people that I had spent you know, most of my life with. The first few months, I think I daydreamed about Kenya every day. Like, I was just constantly wondering, like, what my friends were doing and what my cousins were doing, what my granny was up to. And it almost feels like I don't have a lot of memories of those first few months because maybe I dissociated. But I do remember one thing for sure. I do remember just thinking about Kenya a lot. Yeah, those first few months were a blur. (laughs) So initially we lived in Ballycullen, the nicest side of Tala, if I can say that. And then we got a council house in West Tala. And so I commuted to school to Ballycullen, so I'd get two buses to Firehouse Community College. There were only two other black students. Um, They were in fifth year. I just remember just being like, oh, (laughs) so this is my new life. So I just literally put my head down and just studied. My teachers loved me (laughs) because I did all my work. I was always on time and I didn't talk back. I think partially because in Kenya, you have to listen. Um, when I was in school in Kenya, they would hit you if if you made noise or if you failed. Literally, the like, yeah, awful. So for the Christmas exams, I got all A's, <laughs> and um, I I remember people being like, "How did you get all A's? Because does that mean that you speak English?" And I was like, "Yeah, I speak English," and but that's how little I tried to socialize. The bus for me was an awful place. Like I I still get anxious getting on buses. So there was a lot of um name calling. Um today my no yesterday my son was making monkey noises because we have this little monkey toy for the baby and my five year old was making monkey noises, trying to kinda, you know, play with the baby and I was just like annoyed at him and uh, when I thought about it I think too much I ruminate a lot (laughs) when I thought about it later on I was like that's why it bothered me because I couldn't figure out why him playing with this toy and making monkey noises would bother me but it's because I had monkey noises made at me a lot being called a monkey and the n-word and 
go back to your effing country and um and, you know and being accused of taking all the jobs and we're taking all the money so if you're not taking all the money you're taking all the jobs and stuff like that also on the bus i had people spit on my hair and another time i had someone try to set my hair on fire and um, cuz they knew the braids were synthetic and then one day I went upstairs and I tried to sit as close to the front as I could and kind of just mind my own business. That's one thing I always did. Anyway, so I'm listening to my Jesus music <laughs> and reading my Jesus book on the bus. And um, this little boy comes over and he's wearing a onesie, a sleeping onesie. He wouldn't have been more than three. So he comes over zips down his onesie and pees on my leg. And it just started me, like, because literally I had my head down reading my book, listening to music, and I just felt something warm on my leg. And I looked, and there's a group of people sitting at the back of the bus, and um, the whole group all started laughing, and they were like, did he do it? Did he do it? And then, obviously, name-calling and whatever. And I think they wanted to see if I would give them a reaction. But at this point, I had gone through a lot of situations on the bus and I knew not to react because it just made it worse. So I just literally got up and got off the bus. And I was still ages away from my house. And I didn't know what else to do. Didn't tell anyone about the situation probably for years. And I beat myself up about it for ages because I was like, could I have done more? Like, you know, so stuff like that happened on the bus on the regular. And I think the shocking thing is um, Kenyans, and I can only speak for Kenyans and people in my family, there's this idealization of white people, even after colonialism, even though my granny fought during our war of independence, there's this idealization of white people and we love white people. And when white people <laughs> come to Kenya, there's just they get treated better than Kenyans themselves. There's just this idea of whiteness being better and being great and so my granny and other people had convinced me that you know coming to Europe is going to be great you know you'll have a better life and more opportunities so I was looking forward to um, the better life so you can imagine little Maureen <laughs> you know when I first got called the n-word being really confused and being like oh oh like you know I, I was heartbroken if I knew what I know now back then, I I think I would have been in a lot of trouble and um, I would have beat up a lot of people. <laughs> so I'm, I'm grateful for the naivety of my faith at the time and, and this idea that Jesus loves everyone and forgive everyone and love everybody no matter what they did to you. And now I know better. I know I have to set boundaries. I know that speaking out is good um and that Jesus turned tables and he called the Pharisees you know whitewashed tombs and you know stuff like that so um he was a revolutionary in himself so I know that now but at the time I think the na how naive I was in my faith really got me through it so I finished secondary school and went to DIT 
and I did clinical physiology. Um, down here, they call it clinical measurement science. So it's kind of like diagnosis. And I did three specialties, but ended up working in respiratory and then sleep studies. And then worked at the Mana Private for about three and a half years. So in May of 2013, I felt unhappy in my profession. Um, so I thought to myself, let me just pray about this and see what God things because I never thought that your life's work should be connected to your faith weird enough never never ever and um, so I prayed in May and I didn't get an answer till September but I woke up just knowing that I needed to go into ministry I didn't hear a voice but I woke up that morning, had never considered going into ministry. I always considered myself to be like a science girl. <laughs> so I never considered it. But yeah, it was, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I'm glad I did it. Best thing I ever did. One of the best things I ever did. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a flagship school in America called Andrews University, and they do a Masters of Divinity over there, and I just thought, why not? So that's, I guess that's how I ended up there. And I'm so glad because I found my blackness there, and I found my Kenyanness there, I found my feminism there. Um, I remember taking a class on the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. You would not think that a class like that would help you be a feminist. But the teacher, he talked about the emotionality of God and then went into how God is an emotional being and we do injustice when we don't allow people to feel or express their feelings. Or, And he was just saying that we need to embrace every aspect of both male and female. And I sat in that class just crying, and, and it just changed my life. So I think when it comes to faith, and I can only speak for, for Christianity, um, we've been handed down um, a very one-sided faith, depending on who passed it down to you, right? So it's very just kind of male-dominated and white male, unfortunately. And then even when it's passed down to black communities, the black men take it and, and did for years um, take it and just, you know, oppress the women with it. But when I read the Bible for myself and from a female perspective, I see a God who creates both male and female equal. In the New Testament, you meet Jesus who is constantly lifting up women, who's constantly lifting up the oppressed. Um, and I'm convinced that Jesus was a feminist. I'm convinced that Jesus would have been a Black Lives Matter <laughs> um, activist um, because for, for, for Jesus, it was all about everybody being included, being loved, being embraced rather than just the message or the love is just for this group of people. And that's the main problem he had with the Pharisees, these religious leaders who thought they were better than anyone. I come from a very kind of conservative church, um, very conservative family. So it's just literally been me walking away from everything I knew and building back up to see if I am a Christian, why am I a Christian? Because they cannot be because my mother told me I needed to be a Christian or my granny told me that I needed to be a Christian. Even things like abortion, for example. I'm very pro-choice because I believe that God gives everyone a choice. If a person 
feels like in their situation right now, they're not able to raise a child. That is their choice. The same with gay marriage. If a person wants to marry a person of the same sex, that is their choice. So I think Christianity has done a lot of damage to women, to the LGBTQ plus community, to black people. But I also think when studied properly, the Bible is restorative and you can see yourself, anybody can see themselves in the love of God, regardless of what your background is. So I was there during the Trump administration and uh, there was a lot of shootings um, of young black men and some women as well and by the police. Um, So it really made you question everything. Being, Being in the place where racism is not very subtle, it's not microaggressions, like you die for being black while running, you die for being black while, I don't know, in in Starbucks, Um, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. So for me, it made me question my faith when I saw Christians who thought it was okay for somebody to get shot down by the police, and they would justify it. Um, so the university was split. It really was. And it was mostly white versus people of color. There was also a lot of like straight up racism that you encountered every single day that I guess really made you be aware of your blackness and also make you like your blackness because, you know, if you don't, no one else will kind of thing. Yeah. I think one of the things that shame, toxic shame does to us is to make us feel like we're the only ones that are going through it. So you don't want to tell anyone because you're too embarrassed, you're too ashamed. But once you start speaking out, other people start to say um, that they've gone through it. There's healing in that, there's relief in that. So it was just this beautiful feeling of it's awful, but I'm also not alone that other Black people have gone through this. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad I went. (laughs) Um, 2017, I was in Michigan at the time. Dirt broke, like, (laughs) you know, students roughing it. And um, I just had this desire to go um, to Kenya. But I didn't think I could go. And I remember mentioning it to my friend. And he was like, my granny died, you know, a few months ago. And I want to give you some money. to go so he gave me some money and then other friends then were like okay we'll give you some money and so I ended up going and it was um it was such a (laughs) for lack of better word a miracle my granny she was literally my everything it's only in like recent years that I've been able to kind of be like okay so I'm my own person um sorry quite emotional um So she died in February. Um, So that was the last time I saw her. And um, the, you know, going on to do theology as a woman um, in our denomination that we were part of. And um, being African as well, a lot of the times women cannot be certain things. Um, But she would have still... um, 
been really proud of me and told people about me unashamedly, you know. And I remember at her funeral, I didn't get to go because I was pregnant at the time and COVID and stuff. So I was watching it on YouTube and a lot of pastors were there because she would have been a very religious woman and well-known. And one of them was like, where's the granddaughter that's a pastor? I really, you know, your granny had been telling me a lot about you. I'd love to meet you. And that just made me so emotional to know that she wasn't ashamed, um, regardless of what society thought or what church thought or whatever. Being married to Tim, he's quite, he's, he's like, when we met, I was like super right-wing Christian very kind of rigid um, in my own faith. So in our church, um, drinking was frowned upon and whatever, but he was just like drank beer, he smoked, he did whatever. So he has helped me as well in kind of like, you know, getting to that middle ground. Oh God, I met him when I was 11 or 12. The church used to do um, a summer camp between the North and the South. So that's where I would have met him. It's funny because it was at, at another summer camp and this time we were both leaders and he was about 19 and I was close to 21 and um, we spent the whole time together. And then when we went home, he kept texting and the year after we started dating. So we moved back from Michigan and then moved up to Northern Ireland and um yeah, I, I got really depressed. and I, But I think part of the depression was coming back, knowing how dysfunctional the church that I loved and dedicated most of my life to was, and the fact that they refused to hire me. And then also knowing how dysfunctional my family is, and also knowing how dysfunctional my husband's family is. And um, a lot of my racial trauma in the north has come from from them. I knew some of my husband's family were racist, right? But never called them out on it. <laughs> There's a thing called cognitive dissonance, you know, and I lived in that most of my life, okay? You, you kind of have to do it to be like, my parent loves me, but they left me for 12 years, you know? You, <laughs> so I've lived in that kind of place um, for a long time. And even with my in-laws and their family, like I, you know, I was told um, that Black people couldn't rule themselves at a dinner table after church <laughs> and that um, they need white people to rule them. I was upset about it, but I was able to kind of have cognitive dissonance about it and be like, oh, but they accept me. So I'd still have these people at my house every week. And and then I was pregnant with a baby that the world will mostly look at as black, not both black and white. And something in me just, just changed. I sat two members of Tim's family down and tried to have a conversation with them about race and some of the things that they had said, um, like that my husband only married me because there were no white girls in the church. So I sat them down 
terrified because I grew up in a family where you do not confront your elders. <laughs> no matter how nicely you do it, you just don't do it, right? So I'm terrified, but I have this eight-month-old on my lap and I have to say something. So with tears building up in my eyes, I was just like, you know, when you say things like blah, 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 it makes me feel, you know, and this person just said, well, you're just too sensitive. And that was the beginning of the angry <laughs> black woman in me because I was just like, oh, okay. I don't think you'll ever accept me. I don't think you've ever accepted me. You're nice to my kids, but I don't understand how, and I don't know how when they get bigger, how that's going to change when they start looking more black. So that was, for me, the end of the cognitive dissonance. And I've had to put a lot of boundaries. There are people in the family that don't get to spend more than an hour every few months with my kids, um, together with us, because I don't know what you're going to say to my kids when I'm not there. I don't think that the divine makes a mistake, right? I believe I I was born a black woman for a reason. And being black is so important for me. Um, I'm not ashamed of it anymore. That's what I'm trying to say. Whereas for a long time, even if I didn't verbally say that I was ashamed of being a black woman, I definitely was. I'd lived in Dublin for most of my life, right? For longer than I even lived in Kenya. So Dublin was home for me for so long. And then we came back from Michigan and I came down here um, a few times and it didn't feel like home anymore. And that was part of the depression after I came back because people move on and the city, like, it's completely different. Like, they've built up everywhere and, and stuff. So there was that sense of like, oh, my home is gone. But I think inside myself, there has been this longing to belong. So then I started to realize that my issue is actually not a physical place. It was more inside of myself. Um, so the more I work through stuff, the more I realize that my identity is much more based on like, I'm worthy, I'm loved, I'm human. I do still feel very Irish, very connected to Dublin. I don't think that will ever go away. My best times were here. And if I'm being honest, Northern Ireland hasn't become home quite yet. But the more I work through stuff, the more I realize that Kenya is home and Dublin is home and Carrick Fergus will probably be home for the next God knows how long. But my house is home and I think it's because of the people who live in that house and my three boys and my husband who love and accept me for who I am and I finally feel at home with them and I've realized that home is not necessarily a place. It's the people who love and accept you, who know you and still love you, because that allows you to be your true, authentic self.
Thanks for listening. This has been a Bearprint Media production produced by Bjorn McGilla and me, Rob Flynn. Edit and mixed by me with original music by Hakuyo of Sonic Gate Studios. Special thanks to all our contributors for making this series possible. This series was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Thanks very much for your support.